0: Welcome to the Theology in Practice podcast, a podcast that takes theology and applies it to the everyday Christian life. Welcome back to the Theology in Practice podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Kidd, and we are continuing on in our study in the book of John. This week, we're taking a look at John the Baptist and the true light from John chapter 1, we're going to go through verses 6 through 13. The main idea of these verses is that John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus. His life and ministry were to point to the true light, the one through whom which we can become children of God upon our receiving of Him through repentance and faith. Some people thought that John the Baptist was the Messiah. Later in chapter 1, John will write about the testimony of John the Baptist to the Pharisees. John the Baptist echoes exactly what John writes here in his opening prologue. John the Baptist was a messenger who was sent by God to declare that the light of men is coming. He is preparing the way for the Lord. In Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, it tells us about a messenger who will come who will be like a refiner's fire. That's chapter 3, verse 2. This is a prophecy that was fulfilled by John the Baptist. Back in the book of John, verse 6 tells us that John the Baptist was sent by God, and verse 7 tells us about his purpose in being sent. John the Baptist was sent to be a witness to the light so that all might believe through him. That is the light. John is using a courtroom type of language in this verse that will be repeated throughout his gospel. Many things bear witness to Jesus and who he is. Chapter 5 records many of these witnesses, such as the Father. That's in 532 and 37. The works of Jesus. That's in 536. The Old Testament. That's in 539 and 40. Later in the gospel, we will also see a witness of the crowd, and the Holy Spirit in the Apostles. The crowd is in chapter 12, verse 17, and the Holy Spirit in the Apostles is chapter 15, verse 26. Again, John is telling everything with a singular purpose of believing. As John is bearing witness to Christ, Christ is bearing witness to the truth of God. This is why Jesus is referred to as the true light in verse 9. The true light is not set against a false light, but is rather to be understood as a real, a more genuine light. Jesus is the standard bearer through which we can understand what is true and what is right. We are all born in sin, also known as darkness, and guilt, also known as death, and we need the true light to come and illumine our lives. That's from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Because of our blindness to the gospel, like 2 Corinthians 4, 4, we need someone, that's John the Baptist, to turn on the light so that we can be raised to life. This is our spiritual condition. Think about our spiritual condition this way. When you walk into a room, you don't need to tell someone that you just turned on the light. Spiritually, however, we require someone tell us that the light has come on. A.W. Pink says it this way, When the sun is shining in all its beauty, who are the ones who are unconscious of this fact? Who are the ones that need to be told it is shining? The blind. How tragic then when we read that God sent John to bear witness to the light. How pathetic that there should be any need for this. How solemn a statement that men should have to be told the light is in their midst. What a revelation of man's fallen condition. Again, that's from A.W. Pink in his commentary on John. Now in verse 10, there is a clear statement of our spiritual condition. Christ came into the world, and those who were created in his image, like Genesis 1.27 tells us, did not know him. In other words, Jesus made our eyes, yet we refused to see his glory. Jesus made our ears, yet we refused to listen to his words. Jesus made our heads, yet we refused to bow before him. John the Baptist was a witness to the true light. Our daily challenge is to live our lives in such a way that people would say about us what they said about John the Baptist. Verse 11 expands on the rejection of Christ by his own creation. Jesus is not simply the true light that is unseen, he is the true light that was rejected by his own creation. The phrase, he came to his own, is better understood as Christ coming to something that he owns. Much like when we go home at the end of the day. We don't go to someone else's house to wind down and go to sleep. We go to our own homes to see our own family and to recharge for the next day. Imagine going home and your family not knowing who you are and then telling you to get out and rejecting you from the house. That is what verse 11 is telling us happened to Christ when he came to earth. There is a very ominous story in the Gospel of Mark that is related to these verses. In Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, Jesus tells the story of a vineyard owner who built a vineyard and then leased it out. When the harvest time came, the vineyard owner sent servant after servant. The tenants beat each one of the servants and even one they killed. That's in verse 5. Finally, the vineyard owner sends his beloved son, whom the tenants also killed because they believed they would receive the inheritance. Then Jesus asks, What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. The Old Testament is filled with prophet after prophet who was rejected by the people of Israel. Then the father sends his only begotten son, and he was also rejected and crucified. This is a testament to our fallen nature, the right punishment that we deserve, which is death and hell. But as Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 5 tells us, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. This is the glorious news of verses 12 and 13. Verse 12 tells us what happens to those who believe in Jesus, mainly that they are given the right to become children of God. In these two verses, John brings out one of the toughest subjects of the Bible, the subject of regeneration and conversion. There is a tension that happens when we discuss the sovereignty of God's activity and the personal responsibility of man in salvation. The sovereignty of God in salvation means that God works out His will in His way by His means. The focus of this is in verse 12. To all who receive him, that's Jesus, are given the right to become children of God. This is not us giving ourselves the right, but rather being in Christ is what gives us the right to become children of God. Man's personal responsibility comes into the picture because of the witness of John the Baptist. Through his witness, we are forced to reckon with our sinful nature and with the choice of rejecting or receiving Christ. The ultimate question facing every person on earth is, what will I do with Jesus? Verse 13 then serves as the expansion of verse 12. What does becoming a child of God look like? The root of the decision is laid bare by John, explaining that the decision is grounded in the person and the work of Christ. For every person who receives Christ, there is the work of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. For a person to be saved, there must be divine intervention by God in that person's life. If it were not for God's choosing of us, we would never choose Him. John lays out three distinct ways that the choice is not ours. First, he says that we are not born of blood. This means that your parents, your lineage, your family history, or anything related to your bloodline can save you. Your ethnic origin, your social status can't save you. Next, John focuses on the flesh and he says the flesh won't save us. Now, to conceive a child, a mother and a father must come together with the express intentions of procreation. As much as we try in our flesh, we can never be born again spiritually through that flesh. There is no amount of sincerity or willpower that can cause us to be born again as a child of God. Finally, John says that we cannot be born of the will of man. No matter what works we set our mind to do, nothing will be worthy of salvation. Our works cannot save us. This is why Paul said that we are not justified by our works, but rather by faith alone in Jesus Christ. That's Romans chapter 3, verses 24, also verse 28. So, with it firmly established that nothing within man could do or merit salvation... John says that our spiritual rebirth is but of God. This teaching of regeneration is very difficult. Placing all of the work on God necessarily detracts from man's effort. The fact that God chooses sinners and then those sinners respond... Elevates God and humbles us. This is the type of humility that the reformer Martin Luther spoke of while developing his theology of the cross. Man is humbled to the point of almost irrelevance under the shadow of the cross, and it is humbling that he finds God working and willing to do his good plan through broken sinners. The work of God is summed up through the words of an anonymous poem. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, Seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior true. No, I was found of thee. I find, I walk, I love, but O the whole of love is but my answer, Lord, to thee. For thou wast long beforehand with my soul, always thou lovest me. Thank you for joining the Theology and Practice Podcast. Our prayer is that this podcast will help you learn biblical truths and apply those biblical truths to your daily life.